Peace be upon you. If you were to ask the average person if extreme poverty in the last 30 years has gotten better or worse, most people might be inclined to believe that it's gotten worse. But if you look at the data, since 1990 to today, extreme poverty has dropped by 65%. Back in 1990, roughly 36% of the world population was living on less than a dollar a day. Today, it's about uh, just shy of 10% of the world population adjusted towards inflation is living on less than a dollar 90 per day. So over a billion people have been able to be pulled out of extreme poverty, which is a huge achievement. And the question is, what caused these people? What was the, the reasoning behind this? Was it foreign aid? Was it uh, charity? What allowed these people to be able to be pulled out of extreme poverty. And Bono, who's the lead singer of U2, who did a lot of humanitarian effort, gave a lot of his life to helping the poor, he gave a speech at a Georgetown University in around 2013, and he says, commerce takes more people out of poverty than aid. Aid is just a stopgap. Uh, Barack Obama made a similar comment. He said, free markets have taken more people out of poverty than any system in history, and they have lifted billions out of poverty. You know, giving charity, giving uh, help, aid, these kind of things, they're temporary solutions. And the question is, what are the long-term factors that were at play that allowed, you know, these billion-plus people to be pulled out of extreme poverty? And if you ask economists, they're pretty unanimous on the reasoning. And it revolves around four basic principles. The first one is a rule of law. Societies with a rule of law definitely perform better economically. The second one is property rights. The third is free trade. And the fourth is globalization. And without coincidence, these are very Quranic principles. The aspect of rule of law, property rights, free trade, and globalization. And the reason is, is because if we institute Quranic principles in our life, in our society, we will reap the benefits. It's like if someone decides to uh, eat in moderation, to fast, uh, to not drink alcohol, not consume intoxicants, they will be much healthier than someone who partakes in those behaviors, irrespective if they believe or not. Because we reap these benefits. God is telling us to do these things for our own good. So God willing, we're going to look at these four items and then analyze them through the lens of the Quran. So the first item we want to look at is the rule of law. The Quran itself is a rule of law. In Surah 25 verse 1 it reads, Most blessed is the one who revealed the statute book to his servants, so he can serve as a warner to the whole world. This concept of a statute book literally means a rule of law. And the Quran is full of laws for by which we live by to gain salvation in the hereafter and also happy life in this world. So the question is, what is the political system that's most closely aligned to the Quran? You know, most people, they're under the impression that a democracy is the most fair system. But a democracy has a fundamental flaw. And that flaw is that majority rules. And here's an example of that. In a majority rules, let's say someone is accused of robbing a bank. And the people of that town vote 35 to 1 to hang that person without due process, without anything. And because they're in the majority, they can shove their opinion down the minority, the one person who's being accused, and hang the guy without any real process. And this isn't fair because what if that person didn't rob the bank? What if that person had a legitimate excuse of what was going on or whatever? They're never heard because the majority rules in a democracy, in a pure democracy. The political system that's most aligned 
to the Quran, in my opinion, is that of a republic. A republic literally means the rule of law, that no group can force their viewpoints, their uh, judgment on the masses, irrespective if they're in the majority, if it contradicts the rule of law. So in the same scenario, someone is accused of robbing a bank and the town votes. It doesn't matter if they vote unanimously to hang this guy. The question is, what is the rule of law? So under a republic, one would have to see, okay, what rights does this individual have who's being accused? What is the due process by which they have to be conducted in order to uh, charge this individual of that crime? And then what is the punishment for such a crime? It doesn't matter if the majority want to hang someone. If the, the outcome, the, the law says that you cannot hang someone for merely robbing a bank. And this is the difference between a democracy and a republic. In Surah 5 verse 48, it reads, When we reveal to you the scripture truthfully confirming previous scriptures and su superseding them, you shall rule among them in accordance with God's revelations and do not follow their wishes if they defer from the truth that has come to you. So it doesn't matter what other people say. The question is, what does the law say? And in a Quranic system, no one is above the law. There is not an entity in this world that is above the law. Everyone has to abide by the law. It doesn't matter if you're a king, a monarch, a high-ranking individual, someone of huge net worth. No one is above the law. And God gives us the example in Surah 3, verse 161, with the, uh, the prophet. It says, even the prophet cannot take more of the spoils of war than he is entitled to. Anyone who takes more than his rightful share will have to account for it on the day of resurrection. That is when each soul is paid for whatever it earned without the least injustice. In a chronic system, no one is above the law. You know, if someone commits a crime, they are held just as likely, irrespective if they're rich or poor, for the, uh, the, the charges. And at the same time, irrespective if someone's rich or poor, they have due process by which they can attest that they can... Um, stand up for themselves. So a majority can't just vote them out of uh, their rights. And the question is, how do you apply law? Because the challenge is laws have multiple interpretations. You're going to have two people, they're going to have differing opinions on how to institute a law. And this is no different in common law, and this is no different in the Quran. And a simple example of how this can be done is, let's say we had a bowl of ice cream. And we wanted to decide how to split this evenly, fairly. One of the simplest ways of conducting this is one person does the splitting, the other one does the choosing. So in such a way, I would split the bowl into two, but you are allowed to pick which bowl you want to take. This way, if I'm being um, uh, unfair, if I'm being biased, it's going to be at your advantage. And God gives us a similar example in the Quran twice in regards to being equitable. In Surah 5, verse 8, it says, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses. Do not be provoked by your conflicts with some people into committing injustice. You shall be absolutely equitable, for it is more righteous. You shall observe God. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. If I have to make a judgment in regards to uh, some crime or some action or something of that nature... I have to put myself in the perspective that irrespective if the judgment was made towards me or towards this other individual, I would be content with the judgment that's made. If I feel that if that judgment was dished out towards me, that it would be an injustice, maybe I should reassess my interpretation of that law. 
In Surah 4, verse 135, it reads, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses, even against yourselves or your parents or your relatives. Whether the accused is rich or poor, God takes care of both. Therefore, do not be biased by your personal wishes. If you deviate or disregard this commandment, then God is fully cognizant of everything you do. So it is up to us to make sure that when we make a judgment, that we are doing our utmost to be equitable because we believe if we are being biased, we are being unfair, then God is the one who decides the ultimate judgment. If we're being unfair or biased, we're going to pay for it either in this world or in the hereafter. And this is something that we have to do our utmost again to try to render the most fair judgment we can. So why is this so important in the sense of economic prosperity? If you cannot trust the individuals you do business with, if you cannot count on the system, the uh, governmental system, to uphold the laws, then what is it the incentive for people to actually pull themselves uh, from their situation, to try to create a market, try to conduct business, to do transactions? You know, there's this hopelessness. If you believe that there is no justice, there is no accountability, people become apathetic. And this is the worst thing that can happen to a society. As an individual in a society, it's absolutely essential that we uphold our oaths. When we make a contract with someone, when we tell someone that we're going to do something, we commit to something, that we fulfill this. And we need a rule of law to ensure that these practices are taking play. Otherwise, if there's no trust in a society, then no one is willing to do business with one another. In Surah 16, verse 91, it reads, You shall fulfill your covenant with God when you make such a covenant. You shall not violate the oaths after swearing by God to carry them out, for you have made God a guarantor for you. God knows everything you do. Do not be like the knitter who unravels her strong knitting into piles of flimsy yarn. This is your example. If you abuse the oaths to take advantage of one another, whether one group is larger than the other, God thus puts you to the test. He will surely show you on the day of resurrection everything you had disputed. Had God willed, he could have made you one congregation. But he sends astray whoever chooses to go astray, and he guides whoever wishes to be guided. You will surely be asked about everything you have done. And it continues in 1694, it reads, Do not abuse the oaths among you, lest you slide back after having a strong foothold. Then you incur misery. Such is the consequence of repelling from the path of God by setting a bad example. You incur a terrible retribution. Do not sell your oaths before God short. What God possesses is far better for you if you only knew. What you possess runs out, but what God possesses lasts forever. He will surely reward those who steadfastly persevere. We will recompense them for their righteous works. You know, when we have a reputation to uphold, and it's not to the people, it's to God we would behave a lot more morally. And this is the foundation that's necessary in order for transactions and commerce to take place. It's this element of trust that people uphold their word. A society that doesn't have trust, that doesn't have a rule of law, that doesn't have people who you can commit to is not going to prosper. And God gives us a remedy to what we need to do in order to make sure that we value our word. Because today, making a promise is cheap right? Words are cheap. Action is what's important. And God is telling us how to atone for any oaths we break. In Surah 5 verse 89, it says, God does not hold you responsible for the mere utterances of oaths. He holds you responsible for your actual intentions. If you violate an oath, you shall atone by feeding 10 poor people from the same food you offer to your own family or clothing them or by freeing a slave. 
If you cannot afford this, then you shall fast three days. This is the atonement for violating the oaths that you swore to keep. You shall fulfill your oaths. God thus explains his revelations to you that you may be appreciative. If you made a promise to someone and you just completely neglected, you had no intention of upholding it, you know, how likely are you to conduct that behavior again and again if each time you actually followed through with this, that you fed 10 poor people or you clothed them or you fasted for three days each time you broke a promise, each time you broke an oath you made to someone? This would keep us a lot more honest. It would keep a society running because now people have something on the line if they break their oaths, if they break their contract or their promise. And this is why it's so valuable for a society to prosper. There has to be rule of law. People have to uphold their word. And irrespective if there's formal laws or not, this element that people are accountable is really what matters. That allows people to be able to come from the bottom tier of society uh, up the economic ladder. So the second point that it's made is in regards to property rights. Property rights is the fact that we each have the right to what we possess our bodies, our land, our homes, uh, our relationships, these things are things that individuals have a right to. Other individuals don't have the right, irrespective of their uh, power, their status, to come and take these illicitly from other people. And I have a story of a friend of a friend who went to Africa to help them build wells. And he went, you know, they sourced all the material, they showed them how to do it. And this was years ago, but they followed up to see what progress they made, and they did nothing. They didn't dig any of the uh, ditches. They didn't install any of the equipment, and he was baffled. His um, initial thought was, oh, wow, these people, they're just they are lazy and this and that, but then he realized something. The element is that if you have no property rights, you know anything you build, anything you create, any work you do, there's nothing to stop a government official or someone with more power to come and just take whatever it is you've done. So these individuals, they were given these supplies, they were given this, uh, in essence, these uh, favors, but they knew if they did that, someone is just gonna come and take the parts, they're gonna take their uh, equipment, uh, they're gonna scrap the, uh, the metal, and this becomes extremely problematic. What's interesting is there's a lot of uh, developing countries, they never were able to really have landline communication, but they went straight into cellular. And the reason was because each time they try to institute, they try to build infrastructure to uh, create phone lines and cable lines and this and that, individuals would come and tear it down and sell it for scrap metal because there were no property rights. When you could simply just take what someone else works for, what someone else owns without any repercussions, then an entire society falls apart. There's an economist his name is uh, Hernando de Soto, and he studied property rights, and he wanted to know why is it that some countries are able to be prosperous while other ones just seem to linger. And what he did is he went to all of these various countries, and he wanted to see how long would it take to establish a legitimate textile business in that country. And he was mapping out all the steps, all the processes, all the approvals, everything that was necessary in order to legitimately be able to own and operate a textile business in that country. And what he found out was that the more prosperous the society, it was directly correlated with how easy it was to legitimately and lawfully install this textile business. That some countries, many of them, these uh, ones that were impoverished, 
the amount of time that was necessary, keep in mind, these are, you know, graduate students who are installing, uh, trying to go through this, highly educated, highly capable. It would take them hundreds and hundreds of days to be able to legitimately get the qualifications necessary, the paperwork done, to have a legal textile business. And in most of these countries, the challenge was irrespective, even if you had all the paperwork, you've gone through all the guidance, there is nothing stopping your neighbor or some official coming and confiscating what it is that you legally got uh, the right to be able to do. Meaning that there was no incentive for people to start a business because they knew that someone can just come and take their equipment, can come and take their money, can come and take their property or kick them out or banish them or anything of that nature. And when you live under such circumstances, there is really no incentive to continue working. In a uh, Planet Money podcast in February 7, 2018, entitled The Secret Document That Transformed China, it was talking about how China went from this strictly communist uh, society to something that very much resembles capitalism. And what it started was this document among farmers. So in the past, the government would set quotas on how much each farmer could produce and what they were allowed to sell. And these quotas kept people from overproducing. So they, this led to vast amounts of famine that in the Great Leap Forward, it's estimated that over 50 million people died of starvation because of these government uh, quotas and these regulations that were put on the farmers. So a group of farmers, fearing death, fearing starvation, they made a pact, a secret pact amongst one another, that what they would do is they would produce the government quota but that anything that was overproduced, they wouldn't report to government officials so they won't be thrown in jail, and they would be able to sell amongst themselves. What this did was it incentivizes each farmer to work as hard as they can, to produce as much as they could, knowing full well that anything excess they produce, that they could reap the benefits of capitalism from that excess. And this was the foundation of the transformation of China. Now, right now, China is one of the most prosperous societies in the world economically. And um, they still have many pitfalls. They still have a lot of uh, aspects that they're working on. But this was able to pull literally over a billion people out of extreme poverty, this one move of moving towards a free market system. Now, this also corresponds in the Quran. The Quran puts extreme care towards the property rights of other individuals. In Surah 4, verse 2, it reads, You shall hand over to orphans their rightful properties. Do not substitute the bad for the good, and do not consume their properties by combining them with yours. This would be a gross injustice. When individuals, they force the combination of other people's properties with theirs, irrespective if there is a good motive or not, what you're doing is you're robbing people of their property rights. In Surah 2, verse 188, it reads, You shall not take each other's money illicitly, nor shall you bribe the officials to deprive others of some of their rights illicitly while you know. And this word money that's uh, translated in 2188, it could also mean assets, it can mean property, it can mean wealth, anything that in essence is your property. God is telling us not to take each other's property illicitly. When individuals can pay off government officials to victimize the masses, this is a complete downfall to society. And we see this in, our, in the United States where lobbying is just so uh, pervasive. And you have some of these famous examples. They did this study uh, back in 2012 where they looked for every dollar a company spends on lobbyists, they're expected to make a 22,000% return 
in the sense of money they're able to save through subsidies or uh, through loopholes or whatever for every dollar they spend on lobbying. Now, this is ridiculous because this money is coming from somewhere. It's coming from the people who paid the taxes. Uh, Jack Abramoff, who got busted for uh, corruption for part of this uh, lobbying uh, aspect, what he was able to do is he passed legislation or got the senators uh, and the uh, Congress people in charge to pass legislation that added just a few sentences to some bill that was completely obscure. But to his clients who were Indian casinos, they were able to save, I believe, tens of millions of dollars from this language that was embedded inside this bill. Now, this is absurd because, again, that money is coming from somewhere. It doesn't come out of thin air. The American people have to pay for that. Um, in an interview with the uh, one of these individuals, they're part of the, I believe, the peanut lo- lobby. He had this quote, and it just totally resonates. It says, there are three people in the world who understand peanut subsidies, and it's my job to keep it that way. That the more obscure this is, the fact that they can embed this language inside this uh, uh, legislation and be able to make millions, in in some cases tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars because they're able to embed these loopholes, these subsidies or whatever, it's victimizing the masses. So when God says you shall not take each other's money illicitly, nor shall you bribe the officials to deprive others of some of their rights illicitly while you know, that it's the same thing. Irrespective, it's as if you're dipping into the hands, the, the pockets of individuals and taking money away from them. And if you aggregate this, you say, okay, it's 10 cents from each person or a dollar or $10 or whatever. It's not a substantial much for the masses to complain. But for those small individuals who are using the lobbyists, they get a huge windfall. And it's absolutely critical that in a good society, a society that wants to be economically prosperous, that this kind of business is eliminated. And the problem is the fact that, you know, you're never going to get lobbyists gone. But the fact that a politician can do such a thing to victimize the masses, it shows that it's kind of a uh, falling apart of the rule of law. And this is something that needs to be fixed. And this brings us to the third point, free trade. What's necessary for a society to be economically prosperous is this concept. And it's encompassed so beautifully in this one verse of the Quran. And this applies to so many aspects of our engagement in any kind of transaction, any kind of business we're doing. It's in 429. It says, Oh, you who believe, do not consume each other's properties illicitly. Only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted. And this encompasses so much. It encompasses uh, rule of law. It encompasses uh, property rights. And it's the fundamental basis of capitalism is the fact that we cannot take someone else's property illicitly. Both sides have to mutually accept the transaction. Meaning, irrespective of how good my motivation is, how loving and caring I am, if I want to conduct a transaction, if the other party is unwilling, there is nothing I'm allowed to do to force this onto them. And we see this in the example of David in Surah 38, where the two people, they come and they say, look, I have one sheep, my brother has 99 sheep. He wants to combine our properties together. And David tells them that most people who do this treat each other unfairly. And this is the takeaway is the fact that only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted, irrespective of how good the motivation of the brother with 99 sheep was. If that one brother, even if they were incompetent, did not want to partake in that transaction, it is their right to say, look, I don't want you to take my property. Because we are each entitled to what it is we own. And again, this is the foundations of capitalism. Found Capitalism is a voluntary exchange. 
you have a product or a service or something you want to sell, and I want to purchase that from you. No one is forcing me to go through this transaction. I'm not being exploited by this. Both parties are willing to partake in this transaction, and this is the foundation for a society to economically prosper, that they have to both be mutually acceptable in this transaction. And this simple rule, it applies to so much in our day-to-day life. You know, if I'm engaging with someone in some business transaction or even in any conduct, if I'm victimizing them, it's easy because if it's not mutually acceptable, then by definition, it's sinful. And again, these property rights have to be towards everything. You know, if I want to do something that's going to infringe on the property of someone else and it's not mutually acceptable to them, then I'm not allowed to partake in that behavior, right? We each have these these God-given rights that, um, bestowed by our creator. And if we don't respect them, then again, a society is not going to prosper. And this brings up to the last point, globalization. And right now, this these words, in essence, they've grown such a bad connotation, but it's ironic because this is what causes a society to prosper. We have the example of China. In the 15th century, up until then, China used to be the world economic leader, the most technology, the most uh, in innovation, everything was coming out of China, but it all went on hold. And why? It's because around that time, they had the invasion of the Mongols. And when the Mongols invaded, China started setting up uh, walls, in essence, the Great Wall, to keep external invaders at bay. But at the same time, they used to have the largest Navy vessel uh, fleet in the world. Nothing surpassed it until literally 500 years later uh, in World War One, And then they put all that on hold. They isolated themselves from the rest of the world. They didn't want to have foreign influence. And they thought that they would be sustained uh, by just trading amongst themselves. And this put China at a huge disadvantage. Up until that point, they were the world ec- uh, economic leader. And they basically went on hold and they stagnated. They went back into the dark ages with this conduct that they cut themselves off from the rest of the world. Now contrast that to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is literally a rock. It's like you can't really grow anything there. It's like too expensive to have farmland. But it's one of the most economically prosperous places in the world. And the reason is, is because they they uh, embraced free trade. They embraced globalization. They embraced the aspect of realizing that there's something that they could output, uh, almost like alchemy, and then input wealth and supplies and surplus and everything that it is they need in a society to be prosperous by trading with one another. In 49.13 reads, O people, we have created you from the same male and female and rendered you distinct peoples and tribes that you may recognize one another. The best among you in the sight of God is the most righteous. God is omniscient, cognizant. So God is telling us that each of us, we have certain gifts, blessings, favor that God has given us. And by being able to trade with one another, being able to provide our services, our goods to one another, we all benefit. God gives us the example of the people of Sheba. It says in 34.15, it says, Sheba's homeland used to be a marvel with two gardens on the right and the left. Eat from your Lord's provisions and be appreciative of him, the good land and the forgiving Lord. They turned away and consequently we poured upon them a disastrous flood and we substituted their two gardens into two gardens of bad tasting fruits and thorny plants and skimpy harvest. We thus requited them for their disbelief. Do we not requite only the disbelievers? And here's the the reasoning. It says, we place between them and the communities that we blessed other oases. And we secured the journey between them. Travel there in days and nights in complete security. So it's because of this reason that they were prosperous. 
that they had these oases, they had these trade routes that were secure, uh, that allowed them to, in essence, trade with one another. And it continues in 34.19, says, But they turn unappreciative and challenge our Lord. We do not care if you increase the distance of our journeys without stations. They thus wronged their own souls. Consequently, we made them history and scattered them into small communities throughout the land. This should provide lessons for those who are steadfast, appreciative. And this is the exact same example in Surah 16, verse 115, about the society that turned unappreciative. When they had provisions coming to it from everywhere, God was delivering it from all over the world to these individuals. That when they became unappreciative of the fact that they had these secure trade routes, that they had this ability to be able to uh, travel freely, when this was robbed from them, that they lost all, that they became impoverished, they became insecure. Now today, by God's leave, you know, the U.S. gets this terrible rap about the military-industrial complex, that it spends, you know, $600, $700 billion a year on military. But the aspect is, by God's leave, this military spends a huge amount of the budget to make sure that international uh, trade, these uh, uh, trade routes that are conducted, that take billions and trillions of dollars of commerce throughout the world in order for us to have all these goods and amenities that we have, that the U.S. is spending money to secure this for us. Now, if we become unappreciative of that, if we think that it's okay for these trade routes to go away, that we don't need the U.S. military or military at that in order to secure these for us, then we are going to be no different than the people of Sheba, right? This is a blessing that God has given us, and we have to be appreciative for it. So, in summary, these four items are absolutely essential in their Quranic principles. One is the rule of law. Two is the aspect of property rights, respecting the property of one another. Three is the element of uh, capitalism, the concept of free trade, being able to conduct mutually acceptable transactions. And the fourth is the fact that each of us, by God's leave, have been given certain qualities and certain blessings. And by being able to trade with one another through globalization, that we all benefit. Now, this isn't to downplay the fact that there's still a lot of ailments, a lot of poverty in the world. If you look still today, there's 650 million people living on less than $1.90 a day, right? And then if you go up a bracket, there's about 2 billion people living on less than $3 a day. Now, to us, it might not seem much. What's the difference between $1.90 a day and $3 a day? But to that individual, it's life-changing. And it's one of these things that there's still plenty of opportunity for us to do good words, uh, do good deeds, to help out other people, to, to spread awareness for this. Because the number of people who are still suffering, who are still in need, is tremendous. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk.gmail.com. And God willing, next week, we're going to talk about inequality. And why is it that despite the fact of all this prosperity, people doing so much better, that we feel like there's more inequality in the world? So until next time, peace and God bless.